Amen. You can have your seats. I want to welcome you this morning. My name is Adam Young. I'm the lead pastor here at Element Church, and I'm excited that you're here with us. We're in week two of our series called The Passion, and today represents a special day, not only for our church, but for Christians around the world. Uh, as we begin or enter into what's often called Holy Week or Passion Week, uh, and just an opportunity for us to um, pay special attention to the final events of Jesus' life. We always celebrate and remember and talk about the crucifixion, uh, Jesus' death, burial. We talk about his resurrection. Um, But this time of year is a special time for Christians around the world to unite, to take special focus on some of the events that took place in Jesus' final life. And as already mentioned today, um, this morning, today we're talking about the crucifixion of Christ. And we're going to take a very real, a very honest, a very historical and a very graphic look at what took place exactly on that final night, that final day of Jesus' life on earth during his earthly ministry. You know, the English word cross uh, comes from the Latin word crux. Now, what's interesting is in English, our word crux means something different. It doesn't mean cross, right? It means a pivotal or important point uh, of interest or focus. But what's interesting is how those words all collide today in what we're talking about. Because when we talk about the cross of Christ, we are literally in both Latin and English talking about the crux of our faith. Uh, The Apostle Paul Um, wrote a letter to a church that he helped pastor. Um, And this church was located in an ancient city called Corinth. And his first letter to them, we conveniently, or at least the first letter we have uh, from him that he wrote, we conveniently call 1 Corinthians. And in the opening to that letter, Paul talks about the crux of our faith. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18, uh, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open them. Um, If you brought your Bible, great. If you want to use one of ours, that's great. Or, um, as most, and I would encourage you to do, open up the Bible app, go to live events, and then Element Church will be the first thing that pops up under live events. You click that, and every scripture that we're going to talk about today, as well as some special things about our announcements at the end of service today, will be already laid out for you in the Bible app. And so right at the beginning of this letter, his, his fir- the first letter we have that he writes to the Corinthians, in verse 18, um, Paul says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of of God. Just a few sentences later, he'll say, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. What was true in the first century is still true in the 21st century that the cross of Christ is foolishness, it's madness to those who don't believe. But maybe we could start off with asking, Believe what? believe in the historical event of the crucifixion? I don't know if you know this, but the historical event of, cruci- of, of, of G- the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth is the, most, the single most highly attested historical fact of his life. There are some times where you may hear people say, or you might hear it on a TV show or a talk show, um, or critics of religion in general or Christianity in specific, who, who will talk about how... Um, 
Jesus never existed. Or they'll say things like, if Jesus was so important, why is it only the Bible that talks about him? If Jesus was such an important historical figure, uh, why don't other historical documents um, talk about it? And anybody who would say that only reveals that they don't know anything about ancient history and specifically literature from antiquity. As a matter of fact, the crucifixion of Jesus is the single most highly attested uh, historical fact that we have about his life. Uh, Flavius Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, talks about the crucifixion uh, of, of Christ. Tacitus, a first century Roman senator and historian, talks about the crucifixion of Christ. Mara bin uh, Sharap, a Stoic philosopher from the first century, mentions the crucifixion of Jesus. There's a first century pagan historian called Thallus who wrote about how in, in some strange way one day the skies went dark. In the spring, near 33 AD, it was a second century historian, Sextus Julius Africanus, who associated that darkness that he wrote about with the crucifixion of Jesus, which just so happens to match the same record that we have uh, in our Bible. Lucian of Samosata was a uh, first and second century uh, satirist from Syria. He wrote about the crucifixion of Jesus. The Babylonian Talmud, which is a collection of documents that range from the first century to about the fifth century. And one of them, uh, uh, Sanhedrin number 43, talks about the crucifixion of Jesus, probably, we don't know exactly, dated between the second and third century. There are a number of ancient historians who reference the historical death and crucifixion under Pontius Pilate of Jesus. So what do we mean when we say believe? Now, you can reject maybe why you believe Jesus died. You, you can reject our take on it. You, you, can, you can dispute historical reasonings behind why the Jews or the Romans were motivated to kill Jesus. You can disagree or dispute with whether or not that you believe the resurrection took place three days later. Um, you can dispute any Christian doctrine that you would like, but nobody who's being reasonable, historical, and intelligible would ever deny the historical crucifixion of Jesus. And my task today is not just to make sure that you don't deny it, but to make sure that none of us ignore it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a number of looks from different angles at crucifixion. We're going to look at the history of crucifixion. We'll look at the purpose of crucifixion. We'll look at the scene of what a crucifixion would look like. We'll talk about Jesus' specific crucifixion, and then we'll talk about why. Why was Jesus crucified? When we start talking about the history of crucifixion, we probably go back to the 9th century BC, to the Assyrian Empire. Now, the historical evidence is pretty shaky on that point, um, but if you know anything about the Assyrian Empire, uh, then you know something like inventing crucifixion is not a far stretch. But we don't have a lot of historical data. What we do see is we see the Persians begin to adopt uh, crucifixion, and our earliest records uh, of that starting to be done through the Persians and then starting into the Greeks is the ancient uh, historian Herodotus talks about it. But early, early on with like the Persians, um, it wasn't so much being nailed to uh, a plank or a board that we would think of. Most of the time, it could be nailed or being tied up to a pole. A lot of times, they would impale people and then raise the pole. 
Sometimes they would do it to kill someone. Sometimes they would do it once a person was already dead, just as a show of humiliation, as a public display of the shame. So then we see the Greeks start to adopt it a little bit, but the Greeks don't crucify many people because as they say, and in a lot of the ancient Greek literature shows, they considered crucifixion too barbaric for such a civilized Greek society to lower themselves to. So the Greeks didn't crucify people very often, except probably the most famous representative of that culture, Alexander the Great, who actually wasn't a Greek, but that's a different lesson for a different day. Um, But Alexander the Great was quite fond of crucifixion. As a matter of fact, on one instance, he crucified at one single time 2,000 prisoners of war, and he lined up their crosses along the coastline as a symbol to other armies who may want to come against him. Although the Greeks didn't use it a lot, uh, the Carthaginians, those who were in Carthage, um, the Carthaginians popularized crucifixion. They loved it. As a matter of fact, it was their favorite form of execution um, for people of the upper class. They were particularly fond of crucifying generals and admirals who lost in battle, who ran from battle, or for those who were particularly disobedient to superiors' orders. Um, They used it for all kinds of things. They would use it to start wars. They would use it to stop wars. They would use it to, um, to... quiet down rebellious cities. Um, they would use it to put people in, um, in suppression and, and to, to suppress their, their protests. And then from the Carthaginians, we see the Romans adopt it. Now for the Romans, they reserved it primarily for the lower class. It was primarily something that you would do for slaves. Now, Contrary to popular belief, Roman citizens could and were crucified, although it was very, very rare. Um, But the Romans took it to a new level. For the Romans, it became a game. For the Romans, they perfected it to the point of maximizing torture, maximizing pain, and prolonging someone's life while hanging from the cross as long as possible. If the Persians invented it, If the Carthaginians popularized it, it was the Romans who perfected it. And so we see that crucifixion has this long tradition in history that makes its way right into the time we're concerned with in the first century. Now, when we talk about the purpose of crucifixion, um, what I want to do is I want to highlight four purposes of crucifixion, and I'm going to do them in order from least important to most important. Number one, the least important reason for crucifying, the purpose for crucifixion, was death. Now that seems, seems contrary to what you would assume. You would assume the purpose was to execute someone. The Romans had a lot of ways to execute someone. The crucifixion's primary purpose was not to kill you, although they knew that was the end result. It had far more uh, extending purposes. Second in importance was torture. We have historical accounts of people who have been hung on a cross for up to nine days before they died, although that is rare. Usually, um, as you, if you're familiar with the biblical story, Roman soldiers would eventually break your legs so that you would be forced uh, to, to hang and die sooner because Roman soldiers got bored. They didn't want to wait around for you to die. But part of crucifixion, its purpose was torture. The third most important aspect was humiliation. When you were crucified, it was public and you were hung naked. 
And the fourth and the most important was that it was to send a message. Crucifixion was literally state-sponsored terror. It was designed to be a public message to anyone who might dare cross the Roman Empire. Anyone who might dare threaten the authority of Rome. At anyone who might dare to, to uh, ruin what Romans valued so much. Pax Romana, which is Latin for the peace of Rome. Interesting that they would use crucifixion to force peace on their own people. Here are some things that people from the early centuries said about crucifixion. Most of these are Roman citizens themselves. Josephus calls it a most miserable death, first century origin. Uh, from the second century, refers to it as the other, utterly vile death of the cross. Cicero, probably a more famous name that you may be familiar with from antiquity, um, who lived in the first century B.C., referred to it as the most cruel and disgusting penalty. He called it that plague. And at one point, he gave a speech before uh, the emperor of Rome and said, the very mention of the cross should be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, and his ears. The cross was so disgusting that even the letter T, which often represented the cross, was tainted. Lucian of the second century says this, the letter T was given its evil significance by the evil instrument shaped in the form of a towel. That's uh, the Latin cross, uh, the Latin T, excuse me, which tyrants erected to hang men on. Vero, a first century BC scholar and writer, says, the harshness of the word matches the pain brought on by the cross. In English, we have a word to describe terrible pain. Excruciating. Excruciating comes from the Latin excruciatus, which literally means out of the cross. Just to put into words the brutality of what took place in these places, in this moment, they formed a new word just to describe what would happen. But interestingly enough, despite the fact that it was disgusting, that Romans universally agreed that it was horrible, and that even people like Cicero thought that civilized Romans should never even use the word, they continued to use it and support it. Cicero, the one I just referred to that said you shouldn't even use the word, he twice protested against the crucifixion of a Roman citizen. Uh, he was sort of, not exactly, but sort of like the defense attorney. Uh, for two Roman citizens, uh, who he successfully saved from crucifixion, by the way. And in one of his public speeches, he attacks another Roman leader because he did crucify a Roman citizen. But in that same speech, he also attacks that same ruler because this ruler returned some disobedient slaves back to their masters to be punished instead of crucifying them himself. And he used it as a critique of this same man. The Stoic Seneca ascribes the abomination of crucifixion and the tortures that go with it as the worst of all human passions and emotions. But he takes it for granted that criminals have to be executed in this way. It was almost unanimous that Romans thought it was disgusting and horrible. But they also understood its ultimate purpose, and that was to deter. It was to send a message. Quintilian, a speaker from the first century, said that it was a good thing to put crosses 
up in the busiest of roads so that the most amount of people could see it. Every major Roman city had their own place designated just for crucifixion and torture that they set up usually high on one of the highest hills so that it could be seen by the most amount of people as a deterrent to slaves and any lawbreaker and a sign of the strict and merciless regime. But it wasn't just theory. It wasn't just that this public message, this state-sponsored terror was in theory. They actually did this. I don't know if you know the story of Spartacus. You've certainly heard the name, whether you know uh, his life details or not. Spartacus was a gladiator in the first century B.C. Uh, He escaped, and he led a slave revolt against Rome. And was surprisingly successful. The Romans didn't take him or his slave army very seriously. And suffered some pretty serious defeats. Eventually they got their stuff together and went full force against Spartacus and his army. And when Crassius led the victory against Spartacus and his army. They took 6,000 slaves and supporters of Spartacus. And crucified all 6,000 At the same time, spreading the crosses out for miles along the Via Apia, which is one of the most major roads in the Roman Empire that led to Rome. This wasn't theory. They took it seriously. A man from the first century, Alexander Severus, suggested and did um, set up crosses along a pathway and a road that led from the imperial palace to where the imperial slaves slept. So that every day when they woke up and they walked to work, every day, like light posts leading the way, were crosses to remind them of what happens to slaves who are disobedient and revolved in things like slander and bribery and theft. And anytime someone was convicted or suspected of such crimes, they were crucified along the road from the slave houses to the imperial palace to send a message, this is what happens when you don't stay in line. In the first century BC, um, there was a leader who took over and took reign um, in the Judean area, uh, Alexander Janius. And Alexander, when he took power, walked into the temple in Jerusalem and began desecrating the temple. He took one of the cups of wine that was supposed to be offered as a drink offering to the Lord. It was supposed to be poured on the altar, and instead he poured it on his own feet. Then he started barring the religious leaders from offering sacrifices and worshiping, and he started stealing the, the... the gifts that were brought to the temple. And so um, some of the religious leaders had a problem with that and they spoke up and his response was to crucify 800 Pharisees in 96 BC throughout Judea to remind people of what happens when you don't go along with what Rome decides. If you know the story of Jesus' birth, then you've heard of Herod, Herod the Great. Uh, Herod the Great ruled this area at the time of Jesus' birth, all the way north beyond Galilee, far south beyond Jerusalem. It was this Herod who tried to kill the baby Jesus when he was born. Well, in 4 BC, Herod dies. 
Now, that has the implication that Jesus was born before 4 BC, which I know sounds confusing, but it's true. Uh, whoever, the, the, the person who started the original dating, it was supposed to start with Jesus' birth, uh, miscalculated things. So Jesus was born before the year one, which may, sounds weird, but he was. But Herod the Great dies in 4 BC, and there became a dispute over what we were, who was going to rule the area. Because he was overseeing land that was predominantly occupied by Jews, Jews had a serious concern about what was going to happen there. They wanted to have some say in their own leader. Eventually, the kingdom, Herod's kingdom was divided up to, to three of his sons. But there was some uh, protests about who was being chosen. Some concern about who was going to do this. And so a first century B.C. Uh, Roman general and politician Varus, as a way to quelch the protests, crucified 2,000 Jewish religious leaders in and around Judea. Jesus was alive when that happened. Now we don't know how old exactly Jesus was at that point. So we don't know if he saw him with his own eyes or if he remembered, but he certainly heard the stories. We know that there were frequent trips from his parents to take Jesus to Jerusalem. And there's no doubt that he heard the stories and he saw the leftover crosses. I imagine at one point somebody, maybe a friend, maybe a disciple, maybe his own dad one day said, Son, Jesus, you look at that. That's what happens to people who challenge the status quo. That's what happens when somebody tries to stand up for justice for the oppressed. When you challenge assumptions, when you decide you're going to lead people to a new place, when you become a famous teacher, that's what Rome does to those kind of people. Crucifixion wasn't about killing someone it was about sending a message. It was about reminding people of what happens when you don't tote the line. And it was an effective message. Now when we talk about the scene of crucifixion, I want for just a minute you to picture, I want you to picture the scene of Jesus' crucifixion. Just in your mind. I'm guessing all throughout this room we have different pictures, but probably similar as well. It might be something that matches a picture you have in your home or you've seen. Three nice crosses up on top of a hill, grassy meadow with the sun setting behind it. You might even picture Jesus or a man on that cross who looks tired and limp. Maybe he even has a cut in his side if you start putting the pieces of the historical crucifixion of Jesus together. But our picture of a crucifixion is sanitized. It probably doesn't match reality because we have nothing to compare it to. There's several pieces of a cross. The patabulum, which is the cross bar that the hands would have been nailed to, and then the stipe, the vertical piece. What most people don't realize is stipes were permanently affixed in the ground. 
They didn't go away. And it didn't take long for them to turn black from the stains of blood. And so even when someone wasn't being crucified, every time you traveled anywhere, anytime you went near a major city and saw the crosses and the stipes up on the hill, anytime you traveled a major Roman road or went to a major crossway, there were crosses, there were stipes stuck in the ground, just like we have light poles and telephone poles that run along our roads, there were stipes all over the place to remind people. They were permanently fixed in the ground. Now, how long does it take for a fly to find your dog's mess in the backyard? Not long. Has anybody got to teach a fly to do that? Does anybody have to teach a scavenger to find roadkill? Nope. These places were known for their infestation of bugs. Scavengers were a common sight. We have multiple historians from the first century who talk about vultures eating away the bodies hanging on a cross. In addition to the bugs, I want you to imagine the smell. Most victims of crucifixion never received a proper burial, if at all. Sometimes they were left up long enough until scavengers completed the job. There were always body parts piled at the bottom. If eventually the smell got bad enough or the sights got annoying enough, somebody, Roman soldiers, those at the bottom of the ranks, would be tasked with going to pull what was left off the cross and just throwing it in a mass pit, a mass grave. Burials were not common for those who were crucified. There were piles of body parts that would sit there until there was not, it was nothing but bones. The smells would have been atrocious. I want you to imagine the sounds. When you need to make a quick trip from your village to the big city to go to the market, and the sounds of screaming men on the cross, begging for mercy, screaming in pain. I want you to imagine the crowds. Have you ever thought about why were there crowds at Jesus' crucifixion? Who goes to see that? Who treats, treats a crucifixion like it's a baseball game? As though it's your weekend entertainment. Imagine the kind of lowlifes who would go for their own entertainment. Because we know crowds would gather around to throw things. They would throw rocks and trash and debris at those hanging on the cross and scream and yell and mock them. Imagine the crowds of the kind of people that would surround a cross. Now, if you can for a minute, I want you to imagine taking your children on a road trip. I want you to imagine trying to protect your little girl, your little boy from hearing the screams. 
from smelling the rotting flesh. Imagine trying to protect them because you know that scavengers are always near. And trying to shield them from the kind of people who are hanging out there just for a good time. This is the scene of a crucifixion. It's not spiritual in its most raw sense. It's not metaphysical. It's disgusting. And it was a part of everyday life for Roman citizens if they lived anywhere near a place that crucifixions took place. Now the events of Jesus' crucifixion. As Roselle mentioned, today is what we call Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday represents the day in which Jesus enters into Jerusalem for the final week of his life and ministry. The crowds knew that there was something special about Jesus and they were anticipating him being their next king. They knew that he was here to build a kingdom, to set people free, and, and to push away the oppressors who controlled their lives. They thought Jesus was going to do it from a military and political standpoint. They had no idea what kind of kingdom he had really come to build. But as he was entering into Jerusalem, what they were hoping was a king entering in his capital city. They began laying palm branches down and worshiping and celebrating the homecoming of their king. But the positive atmosphere doesn't last long. On the final night, before his crucifixion, Jesus will gather his followers together to share one last supper. He'll break bread and say, this is my body which is broken for you. He'll take a cup and say, this is my blood that's poured out for you. But they didn't really understand what he meant. At the conclusion of that supper, after having just served them the bread and the cup, after having just washed the disciples' feet, they sing a hymn and they leave and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane at night. And it's from the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus falls down on his knees and begs God, Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. The Gospel of Luke, written by Luke the physician, begins to describe a medical condition that Jesus endures. Today we call it hematidrosis. And it's when the stress and the weight and pressure inside your body builds up to such an extreme level that the capillaries actually begin to burst and blood mixes in with your sweat glands. Jesus literally begins sweating drops of blood as he begs his father, if there's any other way we can accomplish this. Jesus knew what was coming. He had seen it. He had smelt it. He had heard it. He had been witness to the atrocities and he knew it was coming. Jesus is arrested by a dear friend in the garden who sells him out for 30 pieces of silver. And from there they lead him to the first of five trials like a sheep being led to a slaughter. 
Jesus will endure five trials. At the beginning, they, they have their first trial at night, which is an unofficial trial because according to Jewish law, you can't hold a trial during sundown. So instead, they put their game plan together and they start getting people and trying to organize their stories and their testimonies so they can bring charges against Jesus before the Roman governor Pilate the next day because Jews didn't have the authority to crucify people, but Pilate, the Roman governor, did. They begin to put their stories together, but then they run out of things to do. And so to entertain themselves, they begin mocking Jesus. They blindfold him and begin punching him with their big religious insignia rings and start saying, Jesus, guess who hit you now? Guess who that one was? Part of their mockery will be to put a crown of thorns on his head and beat it in with rods and put a purple robe on his back to mock his idea of being a king. They'll make fun of him. They'll spit on him. They'll probably pull parts of his beard out just to pass the time. Jesus will eventually bounce around between trials between Pilate and Herod. Not Herod the Great, one of his sons who did end up becoming a ruler in the region of Galilee. Herod Antipas. And so he will bounce back and forth between trials. Pilate doesn't want to kill Jesus because he knows it's a, it's a potential danger for his own political career. But the mobs have grown, people are angry, and the religious leaders are threatening to revolt. Now here's what will happen. If they revolt, Pilate will kill them all. He'll probably crucify a lot of them like they've done in previous revolts. But it will cost Pilate his life. Because any governor who can't keep peace isn't a worthy Roman governor. Pilate had already been on thin ice. Historically, we know he had already had some other incidences that he didn't handle well. Rome's patience had grown thin. So he was trying to satisfy the mob. So he offered up a choice. You can have Jesus set free or I'll set free this convicted murderer. He was assuming, of course, they would choose to set Jesus free. He was just... He's just a preacher, just a wandering, itinerant preacher versus a convicted murderer. And the crowds begin to scream and to cry and to demand crucifixion. John gives us one little strange detail. He says, and then he, Pilate sent Jesus to be flogged. That's all we're told. Although the statement in Scripture is simple, the events that took place were not. As some of you may have heard before, flogging usually took place with what we now call a cat of nine tails. It was a whip that had nine ends, nine leather strands. And at the end of every strand, different things were tied. A lot of times uh, metal beads or uh, rocks were tied. So that every time you were whipped, it acted like a meat tenderizer to tenderize the flesh to make it easier to tear apart. On part of the ends would have been sharpened stone or metal to act as razors. And then on part of the ends were metal hooks. And usually what would happen is the person being flogged would be tied up to a pole, stripped naked, with their hands held up high so that everything, their back and their sides, were fully exposed. And then soldiers would stand on either side and take turns. Now we don't know how severe the flogging of Jesus was. The Bible just doesn't say. 
Sometimes they weren't too severe. Most of the time, they were. We do know that it was a common occurrence for people to die by flogging before they ever even made it to the cross. We have historical accounts of when those hooks would catch into someone's flesh. We have historical accounts of people's ribs being ripped out. Most often because of those hooks, your internal organs were exposed and sometimes even falling out by the end. Roman soldiers would play games to see who could inflict the most damage. We don't know what Jesus' flogging looked like, but it was probably pretty severe. And the reason we know that is because the next stage is you carry your own patabulum, the crossbar, to the site of the execution. But Jesus was too weak to carry it. Which means probably because of both exposure and blood loss, he was already starting to die. Jesus was too weak to carry it. He tried, but he couldn't make it. And that crossbar would weigh anywhere between, between 100 and 150 pounds. And at some point, Jesus lost the energy. He lost the strength. And face first, fell to the ground, that 150-pound beam driving his chest into the dirt. I read a medical journal that examined the implications of what would have taken place in that, and they likened it to a head-on collision at 40 miles an hour in which you are not wearing a seatbelt and there are no airbags. At that, at, at that rate of speed, that impact of your chest hitting the steering wheel is equivalent to what Jesus experienced when he fell and crashed with the weight of that beam on his shoulders. No doubt at this point he has heart contusions. They have to get somebody else to carry the cross for him. When they arrive to the scene of the crucifixion, they'll throw the board down, they'll throw Jesus on top, and Jesus, a carpenter, the majority of his adult life, who had driven countless nails into boards, was himself nailed to his own board. And then he was hoisted up. A lot of times in pictures, we see crosses that are really tall and high, but it's very unpractical, impractical if you're trying to lift a 150-pound man and a 150-pound beam. Crosses just went off enough off the ground so that you could raise the person's feet off the ground. We also know that uh, one of, one of the, the guards there at Jesus' cross felt so sorry for him that he tried to offer him a sponge with something to drink on it. And the Bible says that he used a hyssop branch to do it. Hyssop plants are small bushes. It was not far that he had to reach to get to Jesus. And once he was lifted and the patabulum was secured at the top of the stipe, his feet, his legs would have been bent and his feet were nailed to the cross. And now at this point, it's a waiting game. It's a waiting game. Usually, victims of crucifixion die from asphyxiation, not being able to breathe because of the weight of their entire body resting on their wrists that are outstretched. And actually, it's not that you can't breathe in. It's that in that position, you can't breathe out. So every time that you want to exhale or speak words, you have to pull yourself up 
by the nails in your wrists and push up with your feet by the nail that has nailed your feet into the stipe. Every time Jesus says a word from the cross, when he reaches out to the, to the thief next to him to give him assurance and comfort over his own soul's condition and salvation, when he looks out to his mom and the disciple John and says, John, you're going to take care of my mom from now on. In order to do it, Jesus had to pull himself up because you have to exhale in order to speak. Jesus probably did not die from asphyxiation for a couple reasons. One, he was not on the cross very long. He did not live long. Two, the Bible is very clear that at one point Jesus pulls him himself up and cries out in what the Bible says, a loud voice, not someone who's gasping for breath and who's about to die from asphyxiation. And the other reason why many scholars believe that he didn't die from asphyxiation is because when the Roman soldiers wanted to confirm that Jesus was dead, they stuck a spear in his side and what flew out, uh, came out? Blood and water. Jesus knew when his time was coming. Because he pulled himself up on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. And then he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he died. Jesus knew it was coming. It was probably that the heart, the, the, the sacks around his heart were rupturing. He felt it. He knew it. He knew his time was over. So from the cross, Jesus dies literally and figuratively of a broken heart. And we call this what? Our good news. It's what the word gospel means. It means good news. We celebrate this. Why? Why would we celebrate this? What was the purpose of this suffering? If you have your Bible apps open, or if you want to look at the screen, you can follow along with me here. We celebrate this as good, new, good news because Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Romans 4.25, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Romans 5, 6 through 8, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 15, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. 2 Corinthians 5, 
Verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus told his disciples multiple times, I'm going to go to Jerusalem to die. They didn't really believe him or understand him. Jesus told his disciples, no one takes my life. I lay it down on my own accord. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter, in typical Peter fashion, pulls out his sword when they go to arrest Jesus, and Jesus stops him. Jesus tells Peter, don't you know that I could call a legion of angels if that's what I wanted? In his trial before Pilate, Pilate is so frustrated that he can't get the answers out of Jesus he wants. Because Pilate desperately wants to set Jesus free. He knows that this whole saga could cost him his political career and possibly his life. And he's begging Jesus to just give him something to work with. And at one point, Pilate looks at Jesus and says, do you not know that I have the authority to kill you or to set you free? And Jesus responds, you have no authority that wasn't given to you. In Colossians 1, we know that all things were made by him, through him, for him. Jesus essentially looked at Pilate and said, you don't have any authority that I didn't give you. Jesus chose the cross. He knew what he was walking into and he chose the cross for us. So that we could be set free. So that we could find hope, forgiveness, new life in Him. So that the separation between us and our Creator, that gap could be closed. That He could do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Just as Kyle mentioned, we're here because none of us get what we deserve. Because what all of us deserve is an eternal crucifixion for our treacherous rebellion against the creator of the universe. And Jesus took it on our behalf so that in him and through him we could have new life. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you for our time here And I pray that just in a humble and sober way, we would take serious thought and recognition of what you have accomplished for us. As we take an honest look at what it is that you did, what you endured for us, would you speak to our hearts right now? our broken, sinful hearts that so often want to do our own thing, go our own way, worship ourselves as though we're so good, but that you would break us from that, that we would come to worship you for who you are and what you have done on our behalf. I'm going to ask you to keep your eyes closed for a moment. 
We're going to move into a response time and opportunity to think and to pray and to reflect and to worship. And it's right that we worship these these realities. One of the very first Christian hymns of the early church we find in Philippians chapter 2. And this hymn celebrates what we talked about today. In talking about Jesus, it sings and celebrates that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant. And then it says, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And because of this, God has elevated Jesus in his name so that every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We come here to bend our knees and to raise our voices to celebrate that Jesus is Lord because despite the best attempts of the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers, they could not defeat him. He got the victory in the end. Death could not hold him. And so we're going to provide an opportunity for you to respond. Communion is available for you in the back to remember and to celebrate and to commemorate this moment in history. When Jesus was having that final supper with his disciples in Luke 22, he said, it says this, and he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And the table, the elements of the table are available for you to do it in remembrance of him, that he established a new covenant with us. And today the challenge isn't just for you to believe in the historical event of the crucifixion, but to believe in its earth-shattering spiritual significance. That an innocent man chose the cross for you so that you would give him your life you've never done that you do that right here right now no magical words you just pray to God and you give him your life because he gave it all for you in addition to the table there'll be some individuals standing in the back particularly they're going to be standing right underneath the lights if you would like prayer during this time we would love for you to come meet us under those lights we would love the opportunity to pray for you Lord Jesus thank you for this time Would what we do in this moment be honoring to you? Whether it's prayer or singing, taking of the bread and the cup, the attitudes of our heart, the thoughts of our mind, would they all be honoring to you in this moment as we respond to who you are and what you have done?